like how's it going to get paid because we've got mm. a mess to fix up it's going to get paid in real terms that's what you're get, saying it, it'll get paid one way or the other right yeah. like it's going to get paid we've made and, it like as a, as a as a species we've made a debt and it's going to get paid are you sure you're not like you the listener are not the person who's going to be paying a chunk of it and do you know how you're going to be paying that chunk because yeah like that's the real like like blinders off cold hard you know stare the thing in the face right are you sure you're not going to be the one that pays and are you sure you know how you're going to pay for it because there's a debt and it's going to get paid Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today is the end of the world. Wait, let me try that again. Today is part two of my conversation with sixth year MMT activist Andrew Churguin. It's a dark episode, just letting you know. Today, Andrew and I continue our conversation about how neoclassical economists don't stay in their lane and have essentially given themselves and the powerful people who appoint and rely on them veto power over every facet of our lives. Most relevant to today's episode is mitigating, or more precisely, not mitigating, the climate crisis. Andrew and I hit the issue head-on, and it's not pretty. The depth of what we face as a species is stark, it's coming in the not-so-distant future, and it's becoming more likely by the day. Andrew and I come to terms with this reality, and also wrestle with what it means to choose to bring up young children in this context. Mine are 11 and 14 year old boys, his six and eight year old little girls. I also want to mention that the first hint of this severity was made aware to me by Australian economics professor Stephen Hale, whose 2021 Facebook post was also the inspiration for our conversation in part one. I spoke with Stephen at length at the 2018 MMT conference in New York City, Before talking with him, I was certain that climate change was a very serious issue. After speaking with him, I started understanding that maybe it was actually a climate crisis. A much fuller introduction can be found before part one, but for now, let's get right back to my conversation with Andrew Churguin. by those people who want control over all these things. Right. 
and and so well and it's also caused by human behavior right like there's a big chunk of the minsky cycle which is something we talk about in mmt a fair bit and i hear Stephen talk about it reasonably often when i listen to his stuff the minsky cycle if you boil it down like to its really smallest idea the minsky cycle is the good times just keep on rolling until they don't Right, of course, like, and, and people are blind to that, and and that's the whole point is that these economists don't acknowledge that. Right, right, and and that and and so the idea that humans will avoid this thought that the good times will always roll that doesn't make sense. We've we've never behaved like that. We don't behave like that. Like if you have us, if we have five years of good stuff happening back to back. We, we start getting used to this and start behaving like it's going to keep going for the next 10 years. Right. And then it doesn't. And then everything comes in a huge heap. And, and, and we know this about ourselves, but somehow our economics forgets it, right? And we want to let the people that can manage to forget the fact that every like 15 to 20 years, we think that the good times are going to keep rolling and then they don't. We want to let them tell us how we handle the environment, which frankly is a scarily more complicated place than finance economy. Because for starters, like, what is it? Like every two years we dredge up a new species out of the bottom of the ocean. Like we don't even know what's out there yet. We find, um, but the whole point is the, the, the major point is that economics we invented and the environment we don't, and we didn't invent. Right. But so, so it's the, largely, this, it's largely in economics is largely a human created concept. The environment is almost exclusively not a human created concept. Right. And well, so, so this is where I'm going to get into that kind of funny bit about uh, me and about science, right? So if we're going to do economics as a science, what we have to think is economics is a way of looking at how we behave, right? Like this is effectively economics should be a branch of psychology where everyone's trained in accounting, right? Like that's, that's kind of where I'm getting to. It's like, mm-hmm. we know the Minsky cycle happens. We've observed it. We kind of know like the people mentality, which is a big group mentality thing that the good times are rolling. So we should keep them rolling, right? Like no one ever goes, we, we, Hey, whoa, 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 let's ease up on the good times here. We're having too many good times, right? Like th- no one does that. No one does that in a group groups of humans don't do that so it's like a behavior that humans as a group do and you can explain it in economics right and the minsky cycle explanation is that people keep on leveraging themselves with greater and greater debt until they hit the point where as there's enough people in the economy that can't cover their debts that the whole pile of debt just crunches down right and look we've known humans have instead kind of instinctively known that this happens like back in the BC times, right? Like people regularly bring up the idea of a debt jubilee, right? Um, And they bring it up for all sorts of reasons, but like people in the past kind of realized that there were two things about why you forgive everyone their debt periodically. One of them is if you don't, it causes big ass problems with how (laughs) your society operates, right? And the other one is, is that, hey, if you've just conquered a city, right? How do you get everyone to really love you? Well, guess what? You tell mm. them, ah, oh, look, all the money you owe to the previous king. I'm not the previous king. I'm the new king. All those debts go away, right? Mm. The old guy owed those. I just conquered him. I'm, look, bring your old debts from the, 
old king to me, and I'll just rip them all up here, and we'll have Interesting. a big ripping up Positive. debt party, right? Yeah, yeah. That, right. So, so uh, most of the first half is is how powerful people stay powerful. The second half, hmm. second second version is how a per, how powerful person can can take can basically take power from another powerful person by forgiving right. their debts for the other guy, right? So, so, so apparently it was a it was a common trend in ancient societies that if, like, if I was a, if I was the ruler of um, Sparta and I went and attacked Corinth, then what I would do is while I'm having the siege outside Corinth, I would make sure I you know have a few people running around and going, hey, guess what, Corinthian people, if you help me get in there and you help me become king of Corinth, uh. whatever you owe the king of Corinth now. It's gone. Forget mm. about it. You don't owe wow. it to me. You owe it to him. Wow. Right? It's not me. So it's like it's it's just PR, right? Like that. There's there's part of it that's just straight up PR and getting goodwill from the population when you take them over, and that's like that sensible real politic. I'm I'm sure there's heaps of people who love it, but the other part is is that if you don't if you don't deal with debt periodically, somehow, and you just let it balloon, it will crash. It balloons and crashes. That's we've known it for thousands of years. We've just not said it in the same way, right? Look, we, we've done it heaps, right? It's happened heaps of times. Like Dutch tulips, right? Dutch tulips are people thought the good times were going to roll on Dutch tulips, and then they didn't, and all the debt came crashing down, and everyone got who went into that got screwed, right? Like it's a famous moment of everyone thought the good times were going to roll, and then they didn't. But but I want to I want to clarify this. Yeah, Do, sure. Would you agree with me? That at our current, at this current moment in time, is the most people in the most crushing debt, and that that all these you know Jeff Bezos and whoever elite people are basically putting themselves in a position for some other powerful person to come in and say, "Help me bring these people down, and I'll forgive your debts that you had to these people." So, so yeah. So if if you wanted to think about it in a really kind of like politically PR kind of way, right? Like someone like Bernie Sanders, right? And there's there's stuff about the US electoral system that oh, I'm glad is not part of Australia, right? But if Bernie Sanders had stood up in front of America, everyone in America, and said the dumb obvious thing, all your student debts will vanish, all your health debts will vanish, the state will break up the health monopolies, the state will break up Amazon. All you have to do to make this happen is vote for me, make me the ruler, and watch all these people who crush you be destroyed. We will destroy them together. But right? you, are, are, you're, you're, you seem to be suggesting that he didn't do that. He essentially well, did that. Right, but what I mean is, at the same score, that, and that's look, and that's part of the U.S. system doing the way that the U.S. system does what it does, um, and the fact that after the U.S. Civil War, the U.S. is not particularly keen on large-scale, you know, conflicts that kill ten percent of the population for reasons I completely understand. So, because like you got to think that like in the past, this suggestion was always done with like me and my ten thousand troops, right? And my siege engines and, you know, we're going to starve people out and stuff like that, right? So there's like some big time violence in the old way of doing this. But but what I'm saying with Bernie is, is that Bernie was saying some of this stuff and that's why he was really popular with a lot of people. Like Bernie's, Bernie's rallies were big, right? And his message was along the lines of, you make me the ruler and we'll make your debts go away. 
Hmm. Right. And, and that, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah. Right. And like, if you want other classic, like appeal to the masses type messages, right? If you said your debts to the powerful people will go away, we will feed you. We will clothe you. We will house you. We will give something that makes you feel good in your local area. Like that just as a, a message, right? If you turned around and delivered that in like the 1600s in England, you would get a peasant revolt. The, the, the Duke of Lancaster and the Duke of York are both, you know, blights on our society. We should take back the land so that we can grow our own food. We should eliminate our debts. We should eliminate our bondage slavery to the land that we are born into, blah, 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 blah. Like this stuff comes like straight out of like, you know, English revolutions. I, um, I want to understand you, you, you were saying if Bernie only did that. So what didn't he do? Well, I mean, and, and also I obviously so, I, I don't think the answer is vote for me. I think the answer is if I become ruler because voting in the United States and pretty much everywhere, you know, is not really what it should be. But setting that aside. Sure. So, so what I'm suggesting is, is that Bernie may have delivered that message, but for various reasons, Bernie's message couldn't get the rest of the way. Um, so I, I, I speak from a very Australian perspective. And for those that aren't aware, voting in Australia is easy, mandatory, and it's, it's such a cultural doer thing that schools fundraise by selling food. During voting, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. So to give you an idea, um, Voting places open on a Saturday, and elections are always on a Saturday. One time, the um, the election because of the way our election cycles run, the election was supposed to turn up during like a a Holy Week for Jewish people, and because the choices were basically a major sporting event weekend or the weekend where the Jewish have their like Holy Weekend or a, or a festival on. The government chose to put it on the one with the Jewish festival and then immediately sent everyone who asked for an election ballot one to their doorstep, right? It's like, okay, you, you, you're a Jewish person and we know that we put our election on your holy day and that would usually mean you can't vote. Have a ballot for your electorate in the post. Like okay. that was the government okay. trying to appease people, right? So that's that's like that's the the flip in mindset, right? Like our government goes out and gives you votes. So why the hell are neoliberals still in charge then? <laughs> okay, sure, sure. I don't, no, I, don't no. I don't want to totally change it. You know, we're we're getting a little far afield, which, no, 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 which in a way is fine. Okay. But yeah, just give me a concise answer for that. Sure. And and again, what was missing from Bernie's thing? And r- so, roughly concise. I, sure. I don't want to get too. No, no, that's okay. So. So why are neoliberals in charge in Australia? Because they control the story, right? Like it's their story and that's it. So the masses have been brainwashed the, and the voting well, is open, but they're so confident that they're going to vote for what the powerful want instead of well, what kind of, kind of. I mean, look, if, if you've got neoliberalism with no caffeine or you've got neoliberalism with no sugar, like either way you get neoliberalism, right? Pick one or the other. Um, our political system still generally produces a two-party result. So when neoliberalism So they, so runs, they filter out, like, like they did with Bernie, they filter out the people's choice before it ever gets to the vote. Kind of, that's, yeah. That's part of it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And so, and so what happened in, in 
the US with the Democrats is that it seems like the the system that favors the neoliberals in power in the US saw Bernie as a threat and headed him off uh, before he could become that threat. And because of the rest of the way that your systems are set up, it's really hard for a rank outsider to get through to the end point, right? So it's not like Bernie could then turn around and then run as a third line candidate completely against both sides. Sure. Right? Like, just the power systems are not set up to let that happen sure. in the US, at least from the position of being an outsider. Mm-hmm. In Australia, it's almost, well, for starters, we don't elect a, a singular head of state. That's that's not how it happens. So, so why are there neoliberals in charge in Australia? Because, well, the Australian Labor Party, our Democrat equivalent, packed the eyeballs with neoliberals. They're, they're nice neoliberals, but they're neoliberals. And then the Liberal Party is packed to the eyeballs with, like, right-wing libertarian. Um, okay, so so you have a wonderful voting system, but your choices are horrible. Uh, yeah, so our cho- no choices are so, horrible. Okay, so that's that's clear for there. So, yeah. so, so give me the concise – I mean, Bernie essentially did say that stuff. Yeah, so why – you know, and, I mean, the voting system is awful here. I yeah. mean, so, so, I know that very intimately. The voting system sure. is horrendous here. Sure. But, but – you know, Bernie did, did did basically say that. So, what are you saying was missing from what, what he did or his message or whatever? Um, look, it, from a historical sp- perspective, he was missing about fifty thousand soldiers. If you look yeah. at it from the long view of history, that's what he was missing. He was missing an army. Um, if he had an army, then sure. I mean, this whole election with you know Trump and all the rest of it would have been a whole different ball game because it probably would have been decided by troop numbers rather than by ballot boxes. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that, that that's fair. And also, <laughs> well, do do you, did the how are you going to pay for it thing come into play in, in part of your part of your theory here? Um, like, how are we going to play for it? So part of it too is that in a, a lot of people who are in those positions of power are used to kind of adopting what I'd call a bargaining position. So, for instance, like if someone asks. If for some crazy reason I went for like political office, which I'm not going to, I like my sanity as tenuous <laughs> as it is, um, and said, "Hey, you should go for elected office," and I went, "Okay," and someone asked me, and I, you know, turned around and said, "I want to do a JG, I want to do Green New Deal type stuff, I want to like abolish the whole, like do my best to destroy the the Eastern Air Corridor on Australia with you know by replacing it with a heavy rail." fast heavy rail service, you know, blah, 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 blah. And someone said, well, how are you going to pay for that? Like my answer straight down the camera would be with money. How do you pay with things? Like what, what, what silly question are you asking here? Of course I'm going to use money. And then if they go, well, where are you going to get it from? Then the answer would be the government makes the money. That's where I'm going to get it from. Haven't you people been paying attention? Like, and just straight right. and then doggedly- they, Right, and then they they leverage the ignorance of, of everybody else that said you know that you know Andrew's crazy, right? And, and but he, inflation but, but, and whatever, right, right. And so here's the here's the bit, right? If the, someone goes around and goes, "Hey, but you're off your rocker," and there's going to be inflation, then my answer would be, "Where? Where's the inflation? We've been doing this for ages. We have got hundreds of years of this. Where's the inflation? Prove it to me. Show it to me, right? And just like take a position which is just a straight, come on, prove me wrong." Don't just talk crap, right? Get out there and put something behind it. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep telling you the obvious, which is if we want money, we make it. 
That's how the law works. That's how our spreadsheet works. And to a certain extent, I would rely on the fact that the media would be outraged by it. Um, so as, as a moment of political stuff, I would actually rely on the idea that they would be outraged and offended by what I said. Um, one of my, to a certain extent, political heroes is a somewhat relatively unknown guy, unless you pay attention to the right bits and pieces, called Screaming Lord Such. Screaming Lord Such's claims to fame is that he was mostly a punk rocker who contested the most number of elections in the UK and succeeded the least number of times. I think he contested something like three or 400 elections and was elected never. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, is that heaps of things that he would say ended up becoming policy. So like three mm. years before the UK amended its voting age, Screaming Lord Such was banging on about how it seemed incredible that uh, you know, an 18-year-old boy could go to war, could die, could get drunk in a bar, could hold down a job, could sign a contract, but he can't vote in the House of Commons, right? And so you've got Screaming Lord Such standing around yelling at like the 1970s media and to people on the street, these ideas like, hey, if you can die and you can drink, why can't you vote? And then a few years later, stuff changes. And so that idea that you just, you stake a claim and then you just stick with it and you challenge people to show you why you have to be wrong and you just stick at it, right? Um, as, as bad as it sounds, that's what a lot of right-wing politicians do, right? Like they say something and then they just stick with it. But a lot of left-wing politicians or people who want to say that they're left-wing politicians don't do the same yeah okay so 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 bring bernie back into this and right. give me it let, right. let's get back to what's the stephen hales uh, thing of getting sure. getting in your lane but but do me a favor and give me the give me the final response of what was missing from bernie's actions or message compared to what you had said sure so so i think part of it is is that bernie the setup in the US was never going to let Bernie win because the people that currently have the power wouldn't let him win and would use whatever systems they have in place to knock a Bernie win off at the pass. I don't think Bernie necessarily played the game too badly. I probably would have been a lot more aggressive in a lot of positions, but that's purely because I'm very comfortable with kind of controversy advertising. Um, I'm happy to let my message get out by saying something wild and controversial and then having people come and ask me so I can then explain it in a measured tone. So I think part of it is just, to a certain extent, Bernie had no chance of winning while he wanted to play the voting game with the Democrats and the Republicans. To, to win, Bernie needed to not play the electoral game. And unfortunately, that's, that's a bloodshed method and Bernie's too much of a nice guy to think that a bloodshed method is a way to win. And good on him. I wouldn't do it, but I know that it's a way that would work. And I'm I'm very so, clear so this, about that stuff with myself, right? Like, okay, so it's so it's not so much his message as far as I'll forgive you debts, because he no, did basically say that. Yeah, like he said a lot of stuff like that. I would probably have said it louder, harsher, more bluntly, right? Yeah, and not handed um, that freaking pay for document. Right. But 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 okay. So basically he right. said the message, but it just simply wasn't realistic because the voting system is because is, there's a bunch of other stuff that gets in the way yeah, of Bernie yeah, winning. Okay. 
Okay, yeah. so basically, I can basically answer this then. The voting yeah. system is horrendous. He right. never called it out. Right. He never called out. He always treated the results and the voting system as legitimate, right. which was absolutely, I think that was probably his biggest flaw. He accepted the results. Right. Like even even as pe- people going out to vote during coronavirus, he right. accepted the result instead of saying it is a sham that people are being forced to th- to have to choose between their their life, yeah. Yeah. Their, them and their families, and having to go vote. And he didn't exactly. do that. He said, I accept these results, and I bow yeah. out of this race, in fact, sure. because of that. All right. So, and and yeah, okay, I understand. Yeah. So, so basically, Bernie could have won. Like, if we had Bernie in, like, 300 AD with 20,000 soldiers, Bernie wins. Yeah, um, okay. That's, right? yeah, that makes but, perfect sense. But Bernie, you know, America, 2016, no. Um, so, I, I want to make a final comment about Bernie before sure. we go on to that. And, no, no, and you said you said that you said we're going to let him win, and it was just so obvious that all they had to do after his fantastic blowout in Nevada, right? And was there one party on the night before Super Tuesday, their neoliberal shindig, mm-hmm. where they said we're all we're all for Biden, and then the right. whole campaign just died. Right. And that, that just showed to me that the entire floor, the entire foundation of the electoral system was a sham to begin with. And they had set that up Yep, that they could just open the hatch on the floor yep. of what was supposed to be this stable electoral process right. and make it all go away. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, like, from, from an outsider's point of view, Bernie was – the guy that should win if the system was set up to let anyone win. Right. But, and yeah. And, and he was too kind and we need someone that's not so kind. Yeah. Okay. Well, I got maybe, it. I got it. Maybe. I, I'm very surprised to have that, that, that kind of diversion, but anyway, it's okay. All right, good. It's we okay. can let it go now. Now I finally yeah. feel like I got the answer. Sure. So yes, back to Stephen um, Hale. Please, so, so, so it's Stephen Hale. Basically. Lane. Yeah. So, so basically what Stephen's saying is like, he's an expert in finance and business and you know, and, and macroeconomics and to a certain extent portfolios and all that sort of stuff, right? He is he is a serious, hardcore banking and finance guy. That is his jam. He knows it. He loves it. That's him. But I think coming out in really simple terms out of what he's saying is, you know, stuff that I'm not, I'm not a marine biologist. I'm not a botanist. I'm not an ecologist. I'm not a climate scientist. I'm not an agriculturalist. I'm not like there's a lot of things that I'm not. And those people are the people who know how like nature works to the best that we currently know. And guess what? What I know in finance won't tell me squat about that stuff. You know, so he's got things like, his comment about measuring ecological footprints um, that allow like exports, right? The, we've set up a financial system that references stuff out of the ecology, but it doesn't it doesn't actually listen to the ecology. It's it forces it to be in an economic frame. Kind it forces, of yeah. It forces everything in life to be discussed. To- in financial terms, terms, which which essentially gives those who are you know the financial experts veto power over every aspect of our existence. Right, and then the staggering bit is what happens if the things that all the finance people think are not how the world works. 
like so to loop all the way back around at the start what happens if what informs all those financial people is utilitarian humans who see no difference between a leg of pork and a leg of the guy who used to live next door right like because that's that's a rat thought right like a rat thought is yeah the guy next door died he's edible <laughs> but humans don't think that thought the guy next door died that's sad that's bad we should you know let people bury the body or do whatever right like mm -hmm. we have those thoughts we don't have the thought of yeah dude next door died let's get the barbecue ready and so stephen's all over finance he's basically saying like finance is great and finance people we screw up stuff that's why we have financial crashes on the regular and i don't know why you let these people try tell you how to sort out ecological problems because for starters, they kind of don't keep their own house in order. And for second, what the hell do they know about the other stuff? Like, right. Uh, so, so I want to ask a question and, yeah. and I, I want to actually give my very vague and stumbling answer and then sure. hear your answer. So money is involved in everything though. Obviously, we're going to have to pay for whatever we do with the Green New Deal and whatever, any issue obviously has to be paid for. So, so in a way, it, it does make sense that economics is involved in all of these different things. So here's my, here's my response to it, which is just I feel vague and not like I do not have my head around it. However, money's involved because we choose for it to be involved. Money's in, money is a human-created concept, and that is simply the, the tool that we choose to use to do the things that we do. And I mean, that's pretty much it. So money is, why is money involved in all of these different things is because we choose for the money to be involved in those things. And then that extends to, so those who are in charge of our money, the powerful and their economists, we have simply chosen for them to be in charge of everything. So anyway, I, that, that yeah. doesn't feel, so, so, so let me, let me ask you, how do you respond to the, to money is involved in everything? Sure. So, look, I'm I'm a chemistry major. I'm a science. I'm a maths major. I'm not a particle physicist. So if I sit down in the room with a particle physicist and he tells me this is how it works, then from all of my science training about knowing who knows what in the room, my answer should be, okay, Mister Particle Physicist, you say it works that way. Let's figure out what that means. And so, like, if you put economists in a room with a bunch of ecologists and climate scientists and the climate scientists say guess what we have to solve this problem here's the problem we know it with a reasonably good amount of accuracy this is the sort of stuff that we have to do the answer shouldn't be okay mr climate scientist pat 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 please walk out there's coffee and tea on the way out the door by the way we need gdp to increase by four percent per annum no like that shouldn't be the conversation the conversation should be okay, what does that mean, right? And then you should have people like engineers who handle infrastructure and engineers who handle power systems and, you know, marine biologists and all these other people just sitting around and going, hey, this one sounds like it's your problem. How do you go about solving that bit of the problem? So, you know, for instance, the climate scientist would say, we need to cut back the amount of emissions and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by this number. And then the 
process chemists should all be turning around and going, right, so that means that we need to cut down all the ways that we, like a whole bunch of these processes that we do that generate carbon dioxide just as part of the process. We need to hit those. We need to figure out how to do those without generating that. And the agriculturalist and the horticulturist should be sitting down and going. Consequences and consequences right? and consequences. And we have to work our way right. through. And then the economists come in short circuit. Yeah, but how are you going to pay for it? Right. But what I'm saying is, is the economist should be sitting in the room listening to all the other experts going, hey, that means that we need to figure out how to make cows produce less methane and carbon dioxide and less sheep. Or we need to cut down the populations of these things. And then this person saying, yes, we also need to do this thing. And, you know, like... And all these different people saying, yes, we, here are the things that we need to do for the environment. Here's our list of real stuff that we need to do. And then the economists use that basically as a target plan. We want to, this is our goal. This is our set of objectives. We bring the economists in. We need to make the economy produce those results. How do you make those things come about rather than the economist sitting there and just kind of going, oh, I don't know, like if we do some stuff, then maybe they'll appear, right? Instead of saying, hey, maybe they'll appear, making the idea, this is the must-have list, right? The stuff on here just must happen and right. everything else goes by the wayside to make this happen, right? Right, and, and, but they're, they're saying that it can be done. We need right. to do these things and it can be done, at least we understand that this is how we can do this and this and this. Sure. And therefore, since it's physically possible... It is financially possible by definition. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, look, and, and it really is that economists come in and short circuit it. Right. With how are you going to pay for it? And if right. you can't answer that question, then we can't even continue with this consequence and consequence and, and consequence. And, and, and leading with the dumb obvious one, like no economist walked into the room in like the House of Lords in London and said, Germans, dealing with them, oh, I don't know if we can afford that, Right answer wasn't, hey, can we afford it? The answer was, we need to figure out how we afford it, right? We need to right. figure out how this happens, not if it happens. And right. that, like that wartime mindset, like, okay, I'm, I'm not a climate scientist, so I expect that these guys who are doing this stuff have pretty much got it on the money because if they didn't, there would be a lot more of them complaining that these guys got it wrong. And they're mostly saying, the same thing, but mostly what they're you know disagreeing about is just how bad it is, right? Like it's it's like people saying, I don't know, the bill's coming in at a hundred bucks, and someone else comes in and says the bill's in at hundred and ten, and the third one comes in and says, I don't know, the bill's one hundred and twenty. Like everyone's saying, there's a bill of a hundred bucks or more coming. We're just haggling over whether it's an extra twenty or not. Like that seems to be where the climate scientists are. So we need a plan, and yeah. and why we're not responding to that. Like I, I get psychology why we're not responding to it because it's a it's a weird thing that we can't see and can't feel, whereas like twenty thousand Germans on the northern border is a little bit more obvious. Um, yeah, so it's like, but having people not talk about it in in that same way of like our objective is to do blah, make the money happen to make it happen, um, and. And I think that's part of part of Stephen's perspective is yeah, yeah. His, no, that his job as an economist and a finance expert is not to tell the ecologists and the scientists the way the world works, but how do we make the movement of debt amongst people in society get us the objectives that you guys tell us we need to have?
Yeah. Yeah. And actually, you just got me thinking of, of, of several things and I'm going to say them and then you can react and then we can close out. Sure. Um, um, okay. Economists come in and short circuit the conversation with how you're going to pay for it and inflation. Yeah. And so we don't even have those conversations that you were suggesting of climate scientists say this, that, yeah. impl- that implies that chemists are going to say this, that implies that yeah. whatever. Yeah. They're going to say all these implications. Well, if that's the case, then we're going to have to consider these things. If that's the case, then we're going to have to consider these things on and on and on and on until that conversation, yeah. until all of those things are determined, which we haven't even really begun that conversation. Sure. Because economists come in and say, how are you going to pay for it? $95 trillion. Right. Well, we can't afford that. So, so basically, what they're saying is that money is more important than climate. Right. So basically, all that is is an arbitrary decision that money – is more important than climate. We cannot talk about climate until we can get through the door of money. And it's a when, then, then the look, reality, and then it's the reality of that yeah. money is human created, and climate is not human created. Yeah. So climate can't exist unless we can, fi- you know, climate we can't be dealt with until we figure out how to how to get through the money issue, money inflation, and so on. Yeah. And yet, the opposite is exactly true. Yeah. Who right? cares about money if we don't have a livable planet? <laughs> right. Like so. Like and 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 it gets even scarily like scarily more obvious when you you hammer down on something that David Graeber said and almost all of the MMT economists say in one form or another in multiple times over, which is money is debt. Like money is an obligation. Money is something owed to someone else. So all this fight over what we need to do to save the environment and do we need to worry about how the money works first? All we're really fighting about all they're saying has to come first is figure out who owes who right like who owes who at the end of this that's all they want to fight about it's it's really it economists come in as gatekeepers for the powerful it's not how are you going to pay for it it's that this program is for someone other than the powerful and this really does get into and and i i want to put a question out there i don't want you to answer it i just want it to be a (laughs) I, i i just want it to be a hypothetical if we keep being passive about this, and maybe it's already past that point, who knows, that we're going to be sacrificing billions of people, which implies that that are you know it, we're getting into you know is it going to trigger nuclear holocaust because of of, of the chaos that that's gonna that's gonna do or or is you know what or, or is it you know I mean they're basically we're talking that this is kind of like. In, to be cynical, which I don't think is completely unrealistic, passive genocide of billions by sitting back and doing nothing. And at some point, something's going to happen. And the the rich are hoping that they're going to be able to live through it with no nuclear holocaust or plague or whatever. But that seems to be where this is going. And the question that I, I am curious about, which I'm, I'm saying don't answer, just to put it out there, is as a parent of, of young children. I have an eleven-year-old and a fourteen-year-old. I think you said your girls are five and what is six and eight? Six, six and, eight. and eight. So how do you be? How do you bring up children, knowing? A lot, first of all, you want them to be children. You want them to just live their lives, be children, and yet you also want them to realize that they're growing up into Armageddon. How do you? How do you be a parent in that kind of situation? Because we are not doing anything about it because those economists are coming in and saying, how are you going to pay for it? 
instead of dealing with the questions of the consequences and how that's what consequences that has and continuing this conversation of dealing with the severity of which may end up being we have to choose which few billion people are going to die. I mean, that's so, essentially, I mean, that that's a so, little so, bit of an exaggeration, so, so, but not so outlandish, I don't think. So, so to kind of add a question to your question, so, you know, without answering it, right? Mm-hmm. Implicit in a lot of this is someone's going to pay, right? Like someone's going to cop the fallout from this situation. And the question is, for most of the people out there, do you know it's not going to be you? Because I grew up around poor people. Whenever stuff went bad, who are the people who get it in the neck? Who are the people who get screwed? And are you sure you're not one of them? Because if we're fighting over who gets to pay for this, is it is it going to be you? Is it going to be with money? Like, how's it going to get paid? Because we've got mm. a mess to fix up. It's going to get paid in real terms. That's what it'll you're get, saying. It, it'll get paid one way or the other, right? Yeah. Like, it's going to get paid. We've made and, it, like, as a, as, a, as a species, we've made a debt, and it's going to get paid. Are you sure you're not, like, you, the listener, are not the person who's going to be paying a chunk of it? And do you know how you're going to be paying that chunk? Because, yeah. Like that's the real, like, like blinders off, cold hard, you know, stare the thing in the face, right? Are you sure you're not going to be the one that pays? And are you sure you know how you're going to pay for it? Because there's a debt and it's going to get paid. And it's not just, you know, that definition of who in that, who is that population going to be? is not oh. just is no longer just black and brown people oh. it's going to be it's going to be like people that we currently think is privileged are going to be part of that bottom of the barrel when this comes to pass maybe McMansions are will not be immune to being among that population of who pays for this in real terms yeah. in real terms and and i and it just brings me back to thinking about my children I want them to be children, but I do not want to be brought up the way that I was brought up, which was, I remember I have a memory. I've mentioned this before. I have a memory of asking about a walk across bridge on a highway and worrying about what if that falls down and being told, oh, don't worry about it. They built it in such a way that they knew it wouldn't fall down. And I remember being in a car with a huge piece of lumber. We just, you know, you had to drive home from a lumber yard and have a huge piece of lumber in the car. And I was really worried about getting in an accident and in my head being crushed against that piece of lumber and being told, I promise I won't get into an accident. Yeah. And it's just like, it's just like, you are promising me something you cannot promise, let alone you can't predict everything else in the entire planet. Even if you do, or even if you are perfect, you can't tell me that you know the world is going to cooperate with your promise. Sure. And I do not want to be that kind of a parent to my kids, and yet I still want them to be kids. 
Sure. So that is what I struggle with. And, and I'm sure that you, you know, you as well, which again, I don't want to go into that now, but that is, that is an important topic of, you know, we're, we're continue to be passive, something that the debt will be paid somehow. Yeah. It may yeah. not be paid with money. It yeah. probably will. It, it will not be paid with money. It will be paid in real terms. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Um, yeah. all right. So, so, uh, 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 yeah, um, I mean, I mean, this is this is interesting. I mean, this really has turned into. It really just feels very raw, and obvious, and simple. That I I, I can't quite I can't I couldn't quite connect it if you asked me to connect it. But for some reason, it feels just much more pure now that neoclassical is just an attack dog for the rich. It's just the, the, you know, the how are, you, how are you going to pay for a question and we have to talk about money before we can talk about climate is really just, you know, we don't have these conversations for war and all that, you know, the things that the rich want. We have these conversations for the things that the rich don't want. Yeah. And it just for some reason, it just feels like a much more like having this conversation somehow has revealed a little more or opened the curtain a little more that it's just that simple. That the how are you can pay, pay for a question in neoclassical economics and the hard mathematics, the bad the bad version of math and the bad version of hard science, is really just withholding from the poor so the powerful can stay powerful. And, and look, I mean, I'm I'm not trying to trying to sit there and, and like tub thump on a on a particular thing because you know not everyone's going to share my political thoughts and and background, but. I've watched enough times when the poor ended up paying for the bill that someone else made. And um, you don't have to be too religious to remember or, you know, if, if you've spent enough time in, in Christian churches, there's, there's, plenty of, there's plenty of Bible stories where someone is saying, hey, the poor are paying for the bill that the rich people, the rich people ran up. Like that's, a, that's not a new story in, in – in you know the old Jewish texts in the Bible, you know it, it's not even that this is a particularly like new story. It's it's an old story that we revived a certain way and put it under a new thing. And yeah, and so it's you know when when a downturn happens, right? It's not it's not Bezos and it's not Bill Gates and it's not Rupert Murdoch and it's not you know, Twiggy Forest here in Australia. It's it's not those people that that pay when that stuff happens, right? The the economy crashes and oh no, Twiggy lost ten percent. Well guess what? Twiggy's still got like three houses and, you know, Fortescue mining company and like nine other things and you know, uh like we had that relatively staggering statistic that um during the pandemic, one of our major retail magnates, a guy by the name of Harvey Norman, he got paid a, a large-ish sum of money that he was supposed to pass on in wages to to his employees to keep them going through the pandemic. And um, while while that did happen, his he, I think his company got about twenty five or thirty million. And during the same period, he had his own personal value and the value of his companies jump by like one hundred and fifty million. You know, it's like, gee, I wonder who's paying for this, right? It's not, it, it's not that rich guy. That that rich guy's not paying for it. And when the next 
thing comes around that is going to make life hard? Is it going to be that rich guy that pays for it again or, or is it not? And, you know, 99% of the time the answer is it's not going to be the rich guy. It's going to be, it's going to be the poor people stuck at the bottom, poor people stuck on the margins, right? Like that's, that's like half of Charles Dickens's like entire writing output is basically the poor people get screwed the end, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, but, but the, the, I mean, easily um, paying for it means something different. Yeah. Paying for it doesn't mean money. I mean, well, that's, that, that's a very, that could be a very small it, part of it, but it, it really it paying for it doesn't mean money. Yeah. It, do, it doesn't when you're poor, right? Like paying for it when you're poor doesn't mean money. Paying for it when you're poor means like you don't eat or you struggle or like classic stories of like, you know, like my kids eat, but I don't, right? Like that's, that's how the poor pay for it. They pay for it that way. Um, yeah, but, but we're getting to the point where the poor is going to start including those people with McMansions. Oh, sure. Like that, that, that at some point is going to happen if you, you know, assume that this thing isn't going to, isn't going to get fixed by doing something early, right? Like, like, like any, any problem or crisis, the longer you leave it go before you do something about it, the worse the results for everyone involved, right? If you have gangrene in the leg, the idea is get it sorted out quick, right? Don't let it spread. But for some reason, we've, we've allowed people to tell us that, you know, this situation will be dealt with well by not doing much right now or... Like my pet favorite hate in this whole situation with, you know, climate change and economics has been market solutions. Um, yeah. you, you, will, you will very, very, very often hear someone say that we need a market solution. The, 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 the market solution to fixing climate change feels a lot like the, um, the scissors version to long hair. How do we end up in climate change? We let the market figure out what it wants to do, right? And then we're saying that the fix will be to let the market do what it wants to do, right? This is as crazy as saying, I have like like jaw length hair. I would love to have hair down my back. I will use the scissors that helped my hair get to jaw length. I will use them some more and that way my hair will get halfway down my back, right? Wow. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if I cut my hair, if I change the scissors I use to cut my hair, then I'll then end up with hair down my back instead of like going well, against okay. its nature. Yeah. So, so well, let, let me put it to you a, a different way, right? Any market, no matter what you do, has like two broadly set up things. One of them is stuff that's being sold and traded and transacted. And then a thing that you do the transactions with, right? We have monetary markets. We use money to trade our labor and goods and services and all that stuff between each other, right? So we use money to swap, to keep track of the debts that we owe each other. And then we swap our labor and goods to get, you know, obligations off other people and trade our obligations that we've collected with other people for their stuff. So who wins in any market, right? the person who has the most obligations on their plate, right? The person who has more people owe them, the person who has more money, they're the ones who get to pick whatever they want out of the market because they can always get it, right? There's no, if they've got next to no price point where they can't afford to buy it, then they get what they want. 
so why are we letting that system be the way that we decide who gets to cover the problems of climate change so like let's take a classic like uh, that people frequently talk about like cap and trade type mechanisms for the market and the idea is is that if you make things that emit carbon dioxide more expensive then they'll stop happening well yeah that's kind of true but what you've also done is you said that only rich people get those things yeah so if i make if i make leather shoes be more expensive from carbon trading tax stuff that we put on it because we're trying to stop everyone using less carbon then what we've said is is that the things that poor people buy they'll get less of they just get less why because Mm -hmm. they've got to cover the carbon that goes with it but the rich people because they've got plenty of money they can just kind of do what they were doing beforehand so they get kind of what they want and people with the least are the ones who are kind of yeah doing the more right and that's a market solution right is that the people with the least in the market get the least back out and if you adjust all the prices in the market then the people at the bottom are the ones that have the biggest impact on everything Mm -hmm. even if they're not the ones who are the biggest causes of everything Mm -hmm. yeah so okay all right all right let me let me uh so so i'll just gonna i'm gonna say Basically, close it out, and uh, you'll you'll give your final thoughts, and then you can close it out. Okay, John Kerry is the person that our wonderful president, our wonderful not orange snack food who, who tweets at three in the morning president, appointed the, to to put in charge of U.S. government's fight against climate change. John Kerry quoted in the news to say, "No government can solve climate change." This is the person that our president, our not Trump president, put in charge of the U.S. government's fight against to mitigate climate crisis. What I mean, so you know, Biden is so much better than Trump, and he put this clown in front in 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 charge of our government's fight against climate change. I mean, that says it all. He is fighting for a market solution. He is fighting for his elite you know, donors. Um, and also Biden said he has just made an announcement as if it's, go- you know, pretending it even comes to pass that he's, he, we're going to reduce 50% of our carbon emissions by 2030. So bold. When the scientists say that we have to reduce it by 100% by 2030 or we're dead. So great. Right. We'll do half of what we need to do in order to not go extinct, assuming that even even comes to pass. So, okay. So, so my question, my final question to you, which goes back to Bernie, is what's our solution? What's the potential solution? Because it seems to me, ob- it seems pretty obvious that we need a Bernie who's not afraid to die. We need a Bernie who's not afraid to put his neck out and basically stand up in such a way that you know scares them to a level that's much deeper than what he has. Because as you said, Unless there's an army of ten thousand, you know, unless this something is something violent is going to be involved in this solution, whether it's now or whether it's you know later on. So, I'm just going to ask you, just take what I just said, which is whatever, and what how do you see that? And then you know, use that opportunity to just close out and say sure. anything else you feel. Sure. Um. So. So I think if we don't. 
if we don't basically start thinking in terms of like in warlike terms, right? Um, then we're probably screwed. And by probably screwed, I mean like if you're not in there's there's pretty much yeah I think a lot of people who uh, feel very comfortable and very all the rest of it are go- are going to be in for a hell of a shock when everything goes goes pear shaped um, and it, it will if we don't do something um, and yeah like do do I think that that's very much on the cards yeah I, I really kind of do I think it, there's a, there's a really really good chance that we are in a lot of trouble. And do I think that there's like a nice peaceful way out of it? Well, kind of, but again, we need that. Like, I think we need someone, we need a lot of someones who will stand up and like, yeah, I think, I think we've, we need a lot of people who are going to make a lot of noise and be really, like really kind of consider the situation as if it was a war situation and 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 deal with it with that level of kind of like we will fix everything now we will make it happen like as of 2 weeks ago is too late kind of like, like kind of thinking um, mm-hmm. and watching like watching australian politics i don't think we've got someone that's doing that that's in a position to make the change in the sort of time that we need um, I've been pleasantly surprised of late by the leader of the Greens in Australia because he's changed a lot of their tune. I'm just a bit disappointed that it's an election cycle later than when I when I wanted it to appear. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's that. Do I think that it can be done? I mean, kinda. But it pretty much requires everyone, and particularly, particularly us people who are in rich white places with you know computers and podcasts and all the rest of it, to really be willing to um, to take a big a big hit in the way things work and the way we behave to make it happen. To that point, like if you if people see me online and they wonder why it seems like I have a really hardline position on stuff like uh, climate change and MMT and people like Elon Musk and it seems like I have a super hard position on them and some really strong thoughts about this and that and something or other else Um, I can pretty much promise you that that thought pattern and that stuff is pretty much coming down to kind of an idea of this is the game that we have to play if we're gonna if we're gonna deal with it right like we can't like it's it's yeah it's, we're not going to go extinct yeah like, at least as far as we're concerned like yeah i mean i'm yeah there's a there's a really good chance that a lot of humanity will end up mostly extinct and if it's not extinct then we've got a heck of a a heck of a climb back out from the mess that we've put ourselves in and those who created the problems are probably the most likely to be able I to mean, climb out of that hole i mean maybe if it goes super bad, then yeah, there's not, they're not, I don't think they'll be anywhere near as powerful as they, they think yeah. they'll be. Yeah. Their um, money will not, like I said before, their money will not. Yeah. Like I mean so much. 
like a bit people people tell me that there's you know there's a great point in having gold and i'm like eh, if all this comes if all this crap goes down uh, I'll, I'll work for two kilograms of wheat but i won't work for two ounces of gold hmm. you know so so there's that now what was the other bit of that so there was one bit which was just like the the ecology just like the, stuff. The, basically a solution you know, with a Bernie that's willing to die is what I said. Yeah. So, like, a Bernie that's willing to die, like, maybe, look, when stuff gets scarce, people are going to start attacking each other. And, like, by that point, a Bernie that's willing to die is a moot point because, you know, the, the, the mess is there. It, like, what's the best way to put it? In a really bleak way, there we go. Here's, here's, here's the thought, right? Um, I know maybe not everyone is familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but the more the climate crisis has gone on and not been dealt with, the more I have become like understanding of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's position on stuff. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian and, and Christian in World War Two, and he planned at least one direct assassination of Adolf Hitler, and I think attempted to carry one out and may have been killed in the process. But he wrote a fair bit about um, his own struggle with the idea of if I can rip, if I can rip Hitler out of the Nazi movement, maybe, maybe I can, you know, save a lot of people and do a lot of good and. How does that sit with, you know, my, my faith, which says don't harm people, right? Like how do I square off assassinating Hitler against like keeping people safe? Can I, how do I? Um, and so that struggle of, you know, how do I handle just the contradiction between I, I suspect that some people with a lot of power really need to just have that power ripped off them, be it, you know, slightly less murderously or, or not. Whatever um, it takes. I mean, whatever. Right, yeah, so like, yeah, I mean, yeah, th this, this is hitting my, my own struggle stuff, right? Of like, I would, I would like it so that it didn't have to come down to, you know, like uh, murdering guillotines and, and all the rest of it. But, you know, on exactly the same score, I, I'm pretty sure it could. And like Nick Hanauer has been saying the same thing for like a decade, right? Like rich people, the pitchforks are coming, right? Like you've got to deal with it. And yeah, and I think I think when when the reality of what will happen in climate change starts to really hit the fan. I think the rich people will very quickly find the pitchforks <laughs> at their front doors. Um, and it's a, it's a situation that they can avoid and it's a situation that we can avoid, but doing so requires people with a lot of power to just completely change their footing away from trying to, maintain power at all costs to trying to maintain being alive at all costs. Hmm. I love the dark ending. I love it. Yeah. Because like, I, 
Yeah, no, I it's it's we if if we're if we're going to do anything about it, we better start understanding what's going on. And you know, it's like those people who are in power are still pretending that everything's fine. MSNBC and all those McMansion people that are, you know, the privileged people, relatively privileged people in their McMansions. We're still pretending that everything is fine. Yeah. And, and, you know, so this is, you know, fate really facing the depth of what we're up against is the only way that we're going to start dealing with it. So, yeah, sure. okay. Yeah. Like, so like, I, like it's, it's like the old line, right? Like when, when the, when, when the Titanic was going down, the, the band didn't try run off. The band started playing abide with me. Right. Like that's, that's the line, right. Is that the, the band that was on the, on the Titanic when all of that mess was going down, they, they played abide with me. They didn't, they didn't try fight for a spot on the ship because like they knew that it just wasn't working out that way. Mm-hmm. And, and look, I mean, having kids in, in this situation, I've heard described all sorts of ways. Um, I've seen some people describe it as like, like versions of foolhardy or selfish or all the rest of it. But in a way, I think it's probably just, there's a lot of hope in having kids now because, yeah, like things might get bad, but if you have kids, you're kind of hoping that it'll still be okay for them. It's it's a and weird kind of hope. And hopefully that they'll be part of the solution. Yeah. Hopefully. Oh, yeah. And we yeah. and people there needs to be people to be part of the solution. So okay. Uh thank so, you yeah. for all your yeah, thank you for all your time. This has obviously oh, gone gone way over and it's very late <laughs> for you. And uh, I got off on the wrong side of the bed, just just didn't have a great night's sleep. But you yeah. took that you took that negativity and focused it in a just a perfect direction. So I, I now can face the rest of my day irritable in a good sense, you know, irritable for the right reasons. Yeah, and uh, like, hopefully I haven't turned you off from being able to fall asleep. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. Like what, what was it? The difference between anger and rage is focus. Um, ah. Yeah, yeah, act, you yeah. know what? Actually, beating, yeah, focusing it on yourself yeah. as opposed to focusing on. Uh... Well, well, the other one, like, um, uh, so again, like I've got a really long Christian heritage, and one of the things that if you if you poke around in the text for long enough, you, you spot is that God gets angry, Jesus gets angry, but God and Jesus never never have rage, right? Like they never in, they never they never filled with rage; they're filled with anger, and so there's got to be this thing about there being a big difference between anger and rage. And what the only clue that I got all the way through is that that anger is about a thing, right? Like Jesus got angry at list, right? God is angry at thing, right? Behavior stuff, right? So like anger's good if it's trying to do the right thing and it's about a thing and it's like there's a there's a target and a point whereas rage is just like angry with no point um unfocused yeah the focus yeah, unfocused versus focused and and like that's that's probably something that i've tried to recommend to people i know who are f- particularly fighting that ecological fight which is the idea that 
they're allowed to be really, really, really angry. Like anger is not a bad thing right now. Rage is bad, but anger isn't bad. (laughs) All right. Wow. Uh, Thank you for all your time. Um, uh, This has been uh, very interesting. A heck of a ride. Yeah. (laughs) A heck of a ride. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, you know. Uh, I, di- I bought the book who, how, who's gonna, who sank the boat uh, I was, I, it's on yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. so alright well th- thank you and I will see you back on Facebook and no uh, sleep well yeah I'll see you around bye alright bye show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape-A-Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all the final processing in the Reaper digital audio workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online headliner app. Today is the end of the world. Wait, let me try that again. Today is part two of my conversation with sixth-year MMT activist Andrew Churguin. It's a dark episode, just letting you know. Today, Andrew and I continue our conversation about how neoclassical economists don't stay in their lane and have essentially given themselves and the powerful people who appoint and rely on them veto power over every facet of our lives. 
most relevant to today's episode is mitigating, or more precisely, not mitigating, the climate crisis. Andrew and I hit the issue head-on, and it's not pretty. The depth of what we face as a species is stark, it's coming in the not-so-distant future, and it's becoming more likely by the day. Andrew and I come to terms with this reality, and also wrestle with what it means to choose to bring up young children in this context. Mine are 11 and 14-year-old boys, his 6- and 8-year-old little girls. I also want to mention that the first hint of this severity was made aware to me by Australian economics professor Stephen Hale, whose 2021 Facebook post was also the inspiration for our conversation in Part 1. I spoke with Stephen at length at the 2018 MMT conference in New York City. Before talking with him, I was certain that climate change was a very serious issue. After speaking with him, I started understanding that maybe it was actually a climate crisis. A much fuller introduction can be found before part one, but for now, let's get right back to my conversation with Andrew Churguin.